Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Please subscribe and leave us a review if you like what you hear. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I am fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help with your website, marketing materials, resume, proposal, or any kind of writing, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. Canadian Kathy Marie Buchanan is the first of four women authors in my Writers on Resilience series. Kathy has published three multiple award-winning historical novels, The Day the Falls Stood Still in 2009, The Painted Girls in 2012, and Daughter of Black Lake in October 2020. I first discovered Kathy in 2010 when I loved The Day the Falls Stood Still, which takes place in Niagara Falls during World War I. Her most recent astonishing novel, Daughter of Black Lake, takes place in the first century AD in Iron Age Britain and features pagans, druids, sacrifices, magic, rituals, romance, and worship of Mother Nature. Only three months old, it has already been named as Entertainment Weekly's Best Books to Read This Fall, Parade Magazine's Fall's Best New Historical Fiction, and Toronto Star's Armchair Adventure Selection. Not to mention the fact it was the best fiction book I read in 2020 and appeared at the top of my own Best Books in 2020 list. I posted photos and further details about Kathy's books on my website, including links to purchase. You can find the background details at www. FertileGroundCommunications.com on the podcast tab. Now let's meet Kathy Marie Buchanan. Hello, Kathy. Thank you so much for being on my podcast today. My pleasure. I'm excited because you're the first author I've interviewed in my series on resilient characters. And I fell in love with your first novel, The Day the Falls Stood Still, when I read it. So I was really excited to learn that you'd written another one, which we'll talk about. But let's begin by talking about your life beginnings. What was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Niagara Falls, Ontario. I am one of five kids. Both of my parents were teachers. So we had wonderful summers, um, two-month adventures every summer. Uh, where we would all seven of us pile into a VW camper van and um, leave Niagara Falls for two months. So the first of those adventure adventures entailed driving from Niagara Falls across America, down one coast of Mexico into Belize, and then up the other coast of Mexico and back to Niagara Falls. Oh my gosh, that must have been so exciting. Wow. I grew up taking a lot of road trips too, because we didn't have tons of money. So those are my best childhood adventures, really. Yeah. And I do think that it may be connected to my love of writing historical fiction. You know, I, I do love travel. I love that immersion in another place when you get off the airplane and it smells different, it looks different, it tastes different. You know, when you're writing historical fiction, you have an opportunity to immerse yourself in another time and place. So I, I wonder if the two are connected. I bet. Well, then you just answered one of my upcoming questions. That's great. I believe you are a mother of boys like me. I have three boys. How old are yeah. your boys and what do they think about your writing? Yes three sons. They're 22, huh. 24, and 26. Oh so my gosh. I've just got one still at home. The other two are off on their own. You know, they're pretty proud of their mom as a writer. I have this lovely story I like to tell about my oldest boy, Jack. 
so he's 26 now, but at the time he was probably only 16. But when he finished reading my first novel, The Day the Falls Still, you know, he was sitting in my bedroom and he closed the book and he looked at me and he said, like, wow, mom, so weird because your book is as good as other people's. <laughs> <laughs> I forever regret that I didn't put that as a quote on the back of the book. Every mom in town would have bought it. Oh my gosh. I love that. That's wonderful. And I mean, whoever thought when we were, you know, younger that we would have three boys. I grew up in a very female household. Uh, there was four sisters and one brother and, and my mom, right? So yeah, very girl dominated household. So this has been quite a switch. Yeah. Did it kind of freak you out a little bit when you had your first boy? Because you hadn't been around that many boys. Uh, maybe it freaked me out more when I had my third boy. Yes. <laughs> and I knew that was done. I thought I wouldn't have any more kids. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm really not ever going to be the mom of a girl. So. Yes. I know. I had the same feeling. And fortunately, my sister also has three boys. So that's made it a little bit easier. And also, I mean, they all love each other. They're also not your stereotypical rough and tumble boys. So that makes it a a little easier too. Mm-hmm. I actually mm-hmm. think in a lot of cases, boys go a little bit easier on their moms than girls do too. I think that is true. Yes. So that's awesome. Uh, so you have a bachelor's in biochemistry and an MBA, I learned. Did you use those degrees before you became a novelist? I did. Yeah. My path to finding the writing life is pretty long and twisted. So I can give you a bit of a synopsis. Back in high school, I was, and I continue to be really a terrible speller. So there was no (laughs) part of me back in high school that ever thought I would be a writer. Back when we had grade 13, I took three maths and three sciences and English only because you needed that credit to graduate. When I headed off to university, one of the criteria I used for picking my courses was that there was no essay requirement, that is spelling requirement. And I graduated with a degree in biochemistry without having written a single essay. I went on to do my master's in business, but again, very much steered clear of the written word. I took as much finance as I could. My first job, and I stayed there for 10 years, was at IBM. So I started in finance there and I ended up in technical sales. Despite my early work life and educational choices, you wouldn't guess it, but it was actually quite a bit of evidence of my artistic leanings early on. In high school, I was really involved in classical ballet. That might be apparent to anyone who's read The Painted Girls. And I was also uh, sewed pretty much all of my own clothes, and that might be apparent to anyone that's read The Day the Fall Stood Still. Anyway, I think in high school, I was sort of fueling my creative side with the dance and the sewing. And then while I was working at IBM in a not very creative job, I was always taking a night school course. And lo and behold, it was always something with an artistic bent. So I took painting, art history, interior design, woodworking, and eventually hit upon creative writing. And then there was a four-year period where I was still working full-time in the corporate world by day, but cramming in a bit of writing in the evening. And then after four years, I decided to take the plunge and turn to writing full-time. That is an amazing story. I spent most of my career working with engineers and scientists, and I thought it was really interesting that you hadn't started out that way. I mean, a lot of scientists don't feel really very comfortable with writing. Yeah, it was pretty interesting when I was at IBM because I did become sort of the departmental wordsmith. But, you know, (laughs) at the time I was working with engineers, computer science grads, math grads, lots of people with an English English as a second language. And I kind of thought, well, it's not so much that I have this talent or that I can write, it's that they can't. Yeah, it took me a, a long while to accept that I, wow. my artistic side, yeah. So spell check, wonderful invention for you then. Right, <laughs> right. 
definitely. Yeah, that 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 all kind of happened around the same time that spell check started to be commonly used was when I actually decided I could take a creative writing class. So you didn't grow up writing really much at all. No, always a huge reader. But um, no, I mean, I, I put pen to paper for the first time when I was 35 and had my first oh novel my published when I was 45. So I definitely came to writing in midlife. And if anyone would have, you know, told my high school self that I would be a writer one day, I would have laughed them down the street. Oh my like, God. Absolutely not. That's really pretty rare, isn't it? For writers? Have you met other writers? Yeah. Who, yeah. That's amazing. Oh, I mean, a lot of writers, it's almost like a calling. I mean, you hear stories about Margaret Atwood crossing the high school football field composing poetry. It (laughs) certainly wasn't my experience yet. Wow. Have you always had a fascination with history? Not really. No, I took, you know, grade nine history and I had a not great teacher. He read the textbook aloud in class and that was sort of the beginning and end of my, you know, history courses. So I certainly have a fascination with it now. I love the research aspect of writing historical fiction. And I'm definitely a writer that has to, you know, be told to stop researching and get writing. (laughs) It can be a really handy procrastination technique. Uh huh. I find that fiction is a great gateway into history for me. I don't think I was like you. I wasn't a history. I mean, it was okay when I was growing up, but my husband's from the UK and he had so much better history than I did. Yeah. I feel like in my adulthood, I love learning about history through fiction and through like TV shows and movies and things. I I always go to the internet to find the background information. And yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, I hear this from readers all the time, like how, you know, they're reading the book to be entertained, but sneakily they're, they're yes. learning a whole bunch of stuff about history too, right? Yes, yeah, it's a exactly. Thing. So you have an excellent website. I just have to tell you, I develop websites for a living and it's amazing. I love your reading guides for each of your books and the book club kit for Daughter of Black Lake. I love it. Are you in a book group yourself? I know you, you speak to book groups, but do you have a I'm- book group? I have, it's kind of a book group. What we do is there's a group of about 10 of us. It's kind of a mixture of writers and readers. But what we've done is we've read a bunch of the sort of tough scholarly works that we hire an expert. So our first book that we read together was Ulysses, James Joyce's Ulysses. And we hired a retired Joyce scholar from University of Toronto to help take us through that book. Yeah, so it's it's a book group and it's got a little bit of a different twist. I mean, we we absolutely do talk about the book the way a, a book group does. There's, there's very little social though. Uh-huh. I think because we have a, you know, a paid moderator facilitator, right. um, you stay on task. I was an English major. So it sounds kind of like English class to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a couple like Vincent, Vincent Lamb is in there, another Canadian writer. Who uh-huh, is yeah. a physician. So he has, you know, no English lit undergraduate, same as me, right? So yeah, so we're both kind of trying to rectify that a bit. Yeah, you're reliving your college years as if you were English majors, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, whereas I like to read more for fun. My high school son is reading some of the great classics right now. And it's been kind of fun to watch him go through those like, oh, yeah, I read Mm -hmm. that one. So the other thing I wanted to point out was when I was looking at your book group guide for Daughter of Black Lake, I saw the cocktail recipes and the violet gin and tonic with the Empress 1908 gin. My close friends love that gorgeous purple gin. And I never heard of it before, but oh my God, it is so good. And it's from the Empress Hotel, right? Yeah. One of my American publicists brought it to my attention, that gin, and I've been drinking it ever since. Yeah. I need to get a bottle. It's so gorgeous too. Oh my gosh. It is beautiful. Yeah. I loved noticing that because I never heard of it before. And 
So let's start out by talking about The Day the Fall Stood Still, which I read in 2010. Can you you describe that plot to us? So The Day the Fall Stood Still is set during World War I in Niagara Falls. At the heart of the story is a love story between young Bess Heath and a river man. So Bess is from a sort of you know, upper class family, the Riverman is not. The backdrop to that story is the development of hydroelectricity at Niagara Falls. So my Riverman character is based on a real life historical figure that lived in Niagara Falls, William Red Hill, who had a sort of uncanny ability to predict the whims of the Niagara River. So he is not pro hydroelectric development. It's a love story at its core, for sure. So you said that the book was an homage to your hometown. What was it like growing up? Near Niagara Falls. Neighborhood I grew up in looks like just about any other 1970s, you know, suburban neighborhood. But there are some things that are really different about growing up in Niagara Falls. One, I I grew up thinking it was very normal for people to do seasonal work. You know, I've known all my life that you can work for X number of weeks and then get the dole. As a teenager, it was pretty wild because every teenager in Niagara Falls is working sort of, you know, within a half a kilometer of the falls in the different restaurants and tourist establishments. So that made for wild summers. And then, of course, we had Niagara Falls, New York, just we call it over the river, but over the border. (laughs) When I was growing up, the drinking age over there was 18. It was also super cheap compared to Canada. So that was a huge attraction. So yeah, it was pretty wild growing up in Niagara Falls. I've been to Niagara Falls twice, once when I was 16, and then in in 2009, and when I was 16. I don't know whether it was different then, but there's that tourist area. I don't remember the name of it. Still there. Yeah. And was that there when like 1981 or was this, has that really developed since then? No. Well, it's more developed now, but Clifton Hill has been there, you know, as far as I can remember. Yeah. So Uh, prior to 1981. So that's where all the wax museums are and all that sort of tinsel and track. Garbage stuff. Yeah. yeah that yeah. my my kids were really attracted to, but not me. So yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So when I was a 16-year-old, we didn't go to any of that stuff because we didn't have a lot of money. We were, you know, it was our road trip. So anyway, really fascinating place, Niagara Falls, I think. Yes, but on the on the other side, you know, I grew up amid the stunning natural beauty of the falls. Uh, I also grew up with, you know, so many stories of the the Niagara Falls lore, you know, Blondin and his tightrope and, you know, Annie Taylor and her barrel and, and all these different things. Yeah. And I, I grew up hearing about the rescues of this um, riverman, William Red Hill, and, you know, seeing the old barge that is still lodged in the upper rapids. He rescued the men that were marooned on that barge. So must have been really fascinating to grow up around those legends. So Red Hill, who your character Tom is based on, what's what's the difference between the true story of Red Hill and your character Tom? Well, the big difference is, is that William Red Hill was also a daredevil, Um, not just a rescuer on the river, not just a guy with an intimate knowledge, but he was also a daredevil. So he never went over the falls in a barrel, but he shot the rapids in a barrel. Um, And when I first started writing, I thought that I was going to more closely stick to the known facts of William Red's Hill's life. But once I got writing, I found the river man that I was writing was way too sort of respectful and had much too much regard for the Niagara River to try to conquer it in a barrel. I use all of William Red Hill's bravery, all of his knowledge of the river. But yeah, my my river man is not a daredevil. 
So let's talk about Beth. So she was a spirited, strong woman, even though she faced great hardship when she returned to her family after finishing boarding school. Were you inspired by strong women around you when you were growing up? All of your characters are very strong women characters. You know, I've never, I haven't really thought that through, but it's come up a couple of times recently. And it's 100% true of all three of my novels have really strong female characters. So I think we often end up writing what we know, um, whether we intend to or not. And certainly, you know, my mom is an incredibly strong woman. She's um, 89 years old, and she's a force to be reckoned with. Well, she's a, a mom who could figure out how to make anything happen for her kids, who gave us every opportunity, but certainly taught us a lot of life lessons along the way. And then also growing up with four sisters, that probably influenced you as well. Right. I mean, yeah, the, the sister theme is is really strong in The Day the Fall Stood Still and in The Painted Girls. Yes. Not so much in Daughter of Black, like there are no sisters. And when I first realized that, I was a little bit alarmed. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, for sure, I have a preoccupation with sisterhood. And these preoccupations, they, they do find their way onto the page intentionally or not. Yes. Well, I feel very close to my sister and I've drawn to books about sisters. Mm -hmm. Why do you think the sister relationship is so special in your books? Mm -hmm. Beyond the fact that you had sisters. Well, I mean, you sort of just answered it. I think if you have a a sister that's close to you, then you are sort of fascinated with that. And I think that so many people's experience is closeness that exists between sisters and, you know, they see it reflected in the work that they're reading. So I think there's that. And then I suppose for people that don't have sisters, it's somewhat aspirational. Um, You know, I have one good girlfriend who's a single an only child. And she often, you know, begrudges that she doesn't have a sister <laughs> in particular. Yeah. Yes. I have one of those too. She has two daughters though. So she's like, yeah, hey, you got daughters. Yes. So if you think back to uh, what the stories that you heard when you were growing up about Niagara Falls, can you share with listeners one of the fascinating historical stories that okay. you learned about Niagara Falls? Well, I mentioned briefly, there's an old barge still lodged in the upper rapids. Some of your listeners may have seen it when they've been looking at the falls. It's still there. It did shift slightly. Uh, I think it was two winters ago in a crazy windstorm and people were sort of waiting for it to go over the brink. But that barge was marooned there back in 1918. So I grew up with my dad telling me the story of the men that were marooned there. And, you know, they were dredging one of the hydroelectric canals and the barge separated from the tugboat and was drifting toward the falls. And then it got stuck on a rock ledge. And the men were stuck out there overnight before they were able to shoot a lifeline gun into to the barge. And then William Red Hill went out in a sort of makeshift sling and pulley system out and rescued the men that were on the barge. The story that I heard from my dad was that when the men got off the barge, their hair had turned shock white. Um, As I researched uh, the day the falls did still, I think that that was a little bit of a added. (laughs) (laughs) So Tom was really concerned about the hydroelectric companies coming in. And and I know recently a lot of dams have been removed and we're seeing a shift from hydroelectric, but he's fighting this push toward progress. Are you seeing parallels in our modern age right now with what you wrote about? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to come off as being against hydroelectricity. Right. And I feel that, you know, right now they're diverting 
sometimes half the water, sometimes three quarters of the water, but the, the falls themselves are still, you know, stunningly gorgeous. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think we do have to, there's always a trade off with progress and, and we do have to consider how we're doing it. And I think that's becoming very, very apparent with climate change, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, we figured out how to make plastic so cheap that it's almost free and now we're filling up our oceans with it, right? So we should be well into thinking about, you know, how, how we want to move forward as a society and how we can do it in a sustainable way. Yes. I read recently that the oceans are filling up with discarded masks. That's the latest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you so. see them on the street a lot, don't you? I know. Yeah. yeah. I love the fact that many of the river stunts and accidents in the novel are based on actual events. Since we're talking about it, I need to go back and reread it. I plan to do that because I remember loving it. Can you describe to our listeners the meaning of the title and what happened in history the day that falls? Yeah. So the, the day the fall stood still is a real day. It was in the mid 1800s, I think 1846, but I also haven't read the novel in a long time. But it was a day when an ice dam formed at the mouth of Lake Erie. So Lake Erie feeds the Niagara River and then the Niagara River feeds Lake Ontario. So the water stopped flowing from Lake Erie into the Niagara River. So the you know people of Niagara Falls woke up and there was no water going over their falls. There was no thunder, there was no mist. They were finding, you know, relics from the War of 1812 on the riverbed. Nobody understood what was happening. And then eventually the ice dam broke. And the description in the newspapers of the time was that the water came back like a tidal wave surging down the Niagara River and eventually went over the falls. Fascinating. And so my final question about that novel is, what do you think makes people so determined to go over the falls, you know, like in a barrel or... I think it's a little bit of the, you know, why climb Mount Everest? Because it's there. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Annie Taylor was the first. I think that was back in 1901. She was, you know, a middle-aged female school teacher. So why did Annie Taylor decided she needed to go over the falls in a barrel? No clue. But, you know, once <laughs> she did it, it's been done over and over and over again. In our modern times, people are having greater success, I think, because of technology, uh, you know, barrels are built with better technology. But yeah, even one of my high school boyfriend's brothers went over the falls. Oh in a barrel. He said, oh. Another strange thing about going growing up in Niagara Falls, I know someone that went over the falls. Yes. <laughs> so I have I haven't read The Painted Girls, although I did just get a, a hold of the copy. So I have it in my possession. Right. I will be reading it soon. So you mentioned you're a ballet dancer. Can you tell right. us about the story of Marie? Of course. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the novel tells the story of young Marie Van Gogham. Marie Van Gogham is the 14-year-old girl who modeled for Edgar Degas' very famous sculpture, Little Dancer, age 14. The book tells her story, and it also tells the story of her older sister, who's a real person, Antoinette. Antoinette danced with the Paris Opera Ballet. She was dismissed from the Paris Opera Ballet for, you know, poor attendance and missing classes. It also tells the story of three real life murderers of the day. And what I did was I took those murderer stories and intertwined it with the story of Marie and her sister Antoinette. So that part is the fictional part. But unlike what we would think today, you know, where we sort of assume ballet had always been a high minded pursuit of privileged young girls. I mean, back in 1880s Paris, it was the downtrodden that the poor girls that were sent to the Paris Opera Ballet School to find the best life. Wow. Yes. So these poor ballet girls would have, you know, traveled in the same underbelly of Paris as these murderers. So in my mind, or in my story, they, they, they know each other and dangerous things happen as a result of that. 
did you go to Paris to do your research? Yes, I did. Yeah. I mean, I did a ton of research at home, but yeah, I had a, a wonderful research trip to Paris. A couple of the highlights were I was given permission to see a class of 14 year old girls at the Paris Opera Ballet School. So the Paris oh. Opera is arguably the most prestigious ballet company in the world. So these girls, you know, are incredibly talented to be in the in the ballet school. One of the great things about that was, you know, I was really intimidated by writing a book about a character that had lived such a different life than I had, this young Marie Van Gogham. But as I was watching the girls dance, I mean, so much was familiar. Like the music was the same, but the practice outfit was the same. The corrections were the same. The footwork was the same. And it did make me think that, you know, though I've lived this very different life than Marie Van Gogham, I expect that part of our experience in the world was very similar to that in the ballet studio. The other really wonderful thing that I did, oh, there's so many great things about that trip. But another highlight was I actually found Marie Van Gogham's lodgings. So Edgar Degas had written her address on one of the preparatory sketches that he'd made for Little Dancer Age 14. So I was able to find her apartment building. Somebody was coming out. I asked to go in. So you know, I walked up the narrow, dingy little stair- hall, stairwell to her room, you know, had my hand on the banister that she would have had her hand mm-hmm. on, you know, 140 years ago. So yeah, that was a wonderful experience too. I can't wait to read it. So let's move on to Daughter of Black Lake, your most recent book. And this book was at the top of my list of fiction reads for 2020. I love I it. I am thrilled to hear that. <laughs> I'm so happy. Yeah, I understand you were inspired in 2002 when you opened the newspaper to see a photograph of an right. unnervingly well-preserved 2,000-year-old human body. Will you tell us the story of the novel. So this body that Marie was just mentioning, it's a body that went into the bog 2000 years ago. And because of the chemical nature of the water, the body was preserved across the millennia. So you could see that it was uncanny, the, the, the fingerprints, the razor stubble, the rope noose that brought death was still looped around the neck. So I got really interested in these so-called bog bodies. And in particular, I got interested in one called Lindo Man. So Lindo Man, we know, went into the bog 2000 years ago in the one once much larger Black Lake. So Black Lake is a real place. And then that body was unearthed. And they know that that body was killed using a triple death. The neck was slit, the throat was garroted, and the head was bashed. Oh, and there's a lot of speculation that this Lindo man lived and breathed as a druid. So one of the high priests of the time. I got really curious about a society that practiced human sacrifice. But more than that, I was really curious about sort of the the beauty and simplicity of a society that, you know, lived and breathed its daily and seasonal rituals. And that was really bound to the land in the most extraordinary way. So what I decided was that sort of using what we know about Lindo Man, this Druid character as bedrock, I would write a story that explored living in pagan Britain. So 2000 years ago in in Britain, and it really did take a look at the order that came from living with ritual and the pagan traditions and also, you know, living sort of in fear of the, the way the gods might react in certain situations. And can you tell us about your key characters in that novel? Yeah. So the two main characters are Devout and Hobble. So Devout is the mother figure. She is a healer at Black Lake. From her, we hear about the love triangle that she's involved in as a teenager. And as the story progresses, we find out about some of the far-reaching implications of that love triangle. Her daughter is Hobble. Hobble is called Hobble because she walks with a limp. 
That's not the only thing that sets her apart at Black Lake, though. Pavel is prophetic, so she has an ability to see the future. And those two differences combine to make her, you know, really put her under threat when this druid, this Lindo Man character, comes to Black Lake. With the exception of the Bible and Clan of the Cave Bear, <laughs> well, and Beowulf, I suppose, I found it very unusual because it was so far back in history. Right. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, I mean, when the when the publishers first saw it, I mean, that's something they were really, really excited about was yeah. sort of the world building that's involved and this yes. different setting. I mean, we've all seen a million books lately about World War II and you know, so they were really excited about giving readers the opportunity to experience a different time and place. And then the other lovely comment I've had time and time again is how lovely it is to be transported to such a different time and place, you know, so far away from 2020. Yes. Particularly right now. I mean, I heard it described as the perfect anecdote to our uncertain times. Oh, I love it. Yes. Two of the things that I love about your writing is you do such an excellent job of setting the place. All of your novels have such such clear, distinctive places and the way that you describe them. And this novel in particular, I think some people might be scared away by the fact that it's so ancient, but you did such a wonderful job of making it accessible to the modern reader. Oh, so. Thank you. And the other thing I was really fascinated about was the Druids. I mean, really, all I knew about the Druids was, you know, the modern day Druids, you know, they dance around Stonehenge, they celebrate right. solstice. And then I read the Outlander right. books and watched the show and they have Druids, you know, around the stones. So were you surprised when you first learned about the Druids? I, I don't think I was surprised particularly, but I have taken a bit of flack because my Druid character is a merciless right? Person, right? So, right. and I think in modern day paganism, and as you're just describing, the, the Druids are looked on quite favorably. Uh -huh. And it, it is 100% true that the Druids were the astronomers and the keepers of knowledge and the judges mm -hmm. and the lawmakers. But we also know they weren't entirely benevolent. You know, if you look at the mythology of the British Isles, there's lots of stories of Druids doing naughty stuff. And we assume that these myths come from, you know, historical events. But in the mythology, you see druids turning maidens into deer and turning warriors into stone and, mm. you know, casting blight over entire crops, these kinds of things. And also, you know, we, the Britons didn't have the written words. So we have no historical record from the Britons, but we do have what the Romans had to say about the Britons. And certainly, you know, the Roman record makes it very clear that the, the druids were involved in inciting a rebellion against the Roman army which is ludicrous. I mean, the, the Britons never stood a chance. You've got this ragtag horde of <laughs> tribesmen. And historically, these various tribes are all busy clobbering each other. And all of a sudden, they're going to unite and take on you know, the well-trained, well-oiled, well-drilled Roman army? I don't think so. So yeah, so my Druid character is a fanatic. He's been compared to some of our modern day people, uh, leaders. Uh -huh. um, but he yes. is, you know, he is, he's a zealot. He is incapable of seeing any point of view other than his own. He's got his blinders on. He is marching forward without any ability to listen to any point of view other than his own. Well, and then the other thing I learned when I was researching after I read your book was that at the point where your novel is set, the Druids were still making sacrifices, but the Romans, who used to make sacrifices, had moved on by then. Right. And they thought the Druids' yeah. sacrifices were barbaric, right? Right. I mean, it's it's kind of laughable because the Romans had lots of like really horrible practices as well. Like in the Roman army, 
if somebody, you know, deserted or didn't follow orders, they would kill one out of, they would take the group of 10 and they would kill one of them. So, you know, if you were going to be not bad, you were potentially punishing your whole troop. And it's where the word decimate comes from. It's like ah. taking one of the group of 10, you know, so this is really sounds barbaric too to me. So yeah. So who, who are the Romans to judge the, the yes. you know, you exactly. ask the question. Yeah. You must've spent a lot of time in the UK doing your research. I think right. you read that you researched this book for six or seven years. Is that right? Well, it took me six or seven years to write it. It was interesting, the research process, because like upfront, I generally research for four or six months. And it's mostly, you know, I'm reading a lot. And I'm reading a lot of this sort of literature of the day. And during that time, what happened for both the day that all stood still and the painted girls was that a really clear picture of the period that I was trying to capture emerged. That did not happen for Daughter of Black Lake. And I think there were a couple of reasons why. One, um, as I mentioned briefly, the Britons did not have the written word, so they didn't leave us a historical record. And two, we have the archaeological record, but the archaeologists don't agree on so many things. I mean, one would be arguing that such and such an artifact was for ceremonial purposes, while the next would be saying it was a cooking implement. So it was really frustrating. And, you know, what I did was I ended up hiring an archaeologist with an expertise in Iron Age Britain to take me on a tour of the relevant sites in the UK. And I remember a really liberating moment where we were standing looking at one of these hill forts. So there's about 3,300 of these so-called hill forts dotting the British landscape. So they just look like hills with usually covered in green. Some of them are excavated and they have sort of defensive ramparts or ditches circling them. And he's telling me, okay, so these hill forts, some archaeologists believe that they were for ceremonial purposes. Some believe they were defensive in nature. Some believe they were inhabited. Some believe they weren't. You know, some of the evidence points to them being cattle enclosures. He went on and on. And I remember standing there saying, ah, I get it. We don't know what was going on 2000 years ago. And I can read to my heart's content, but I'm not gonna, Mm. you know, a clear picture isn't gonna emerge. So I need to rely on informed speculation and imagination to create a plausible world for Daughter of Black Lake. And so what part of Britain is Black Lake? It's Cheshire. How far Cheshire from? Cheshire and Shropshire. Is Cheshire where Chester is? Yes. Okay, I've been to Chester. Okay, that's my context there. The other thing I really found interesting about the book was that Hobble was at risk of being sacrificed, partly because she was disabled. And I personally was born with a cleft lip and a cleft palate and a club mm-hmm. foot. So I couldn't help but think that if I'd been born then, yeah. I might have been sacrificed or at least spurned. Right. Do you think that people with disabilities can have stronger grit and resistance? resilience like Hobble? I have no doubt. I mean, to survive, I I, I just believe they have to, you know, I mean, I can't imagine another way of going forward. I mean, we know that many of the these bog bodies they find have different indications of that they were had some sign of disability. So there is a a bog body called Eve girl that had a congenital hip, which is what ability is. But Hobble, she doesn't want to be the community's runt. You know, she doesn't want to be the first one that they're going to knock off kind of thing. So she learns to run and she's a, a great runner. But I certainly think that people with disabilities to survive have to, by necessity, you have a ton of grit and be tough. Yeah, sometimes stronger than other people, I think. Once again, your devout and Hobble were both fully fleshed out, really strong women characters. And even though this was a very traditional, staunchly patriarchal era, So I thought that was fascinating. I wonder what the likelihood of them existing in this time. Did you see any evidence of that in your research that they had strong women? I mean, there's a couple of things that, you know, which make me question how patriarchal the society was. So for example, Boudicca is a woman. She 
chieftain. So right. he is a, a warrior, right? So this is part of the Roman record. We know this is all grounded in history, right? So she is a chieftain. So like um, would have run one of the tribes and she gets a bunch of tribes to work together to challenge the Romans. So there's that. And also, I mean, they're goddesses. Mother Earth certainly is portrayed as being a female goddess. Kind of interesting because I think our stereotypical picture of God is a, you know, a gray haired man with a long beard. I wonder if maybe it wasn't as patriarchal as we think it was. Yeah, that's yeah. certainly but, true. You know, I think that even it seems to me that women run the show in, <laughs> in, in many ways. Even yeah. though, I mean, I don't want to pretend there's no kind of oppression mm-hmm. of women because there is. But in many ways, we see women running the shows. Uh-huh. And certainly when there's a crisis at hand, figuring out how to manage it. Right. Finding a way to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the famous uh, quotes in your book that I know that you've talked about on other interviews is when Devout says, imagine the world without magic. There's a lot of magical realism in your novel. Was magic considered a critical part of this era? I mean, I think there's magic incorporated into the book for a couple of reasons. Like one, you know, there's no doubt that magic would have been a huge part of their society. I mean, they just didn't have science to explain, you know, the origins of mankind and the nighttime sky and these sorts of things. So they, they would have relied on, on magic. So Devout, the community's healer, when she is creating her remedies, like when she's using Meadowsweet, she thinks she's drawing Mother Earth's magic out of the Meadowsweet. And that's the thing that's going to mm-hmm. cure your headache. She doesn't think I'm, you know, harvesting salicylic acid, which is in fact what was happening. But, you know, she really firmly believes in, in the magic of it all. So there's that. And then the other thing is, you know, when, when you decide you're going to write a novel, you know that you're going to be in a particular kind of headspace for at least a few years. And you want it to be somewhere that you think you're going to enjoy yourself. So, you know, I really liked the idea of um, being in a society that really embraced magic. Yeah, I love the idea of readers reading the book and maybe the book opening a window onto seeing a bit of the the magic that exists in their daily lives. Ooh, that's lovely. Yeah, Meadowsweet was one of the terms that I had to go Google, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I love it when books or shows make me Google things like, you know, it's a again, back to the wonderful opportunity of historical fiction to learn about history. Yeah, so. I, I love hearing from readers that I've sent them to Google. Yes, I do it all the time. <laughs> and also, as we talked about earlier, the people worshipped and made sacrifices to Mother Earth. So during your research, did you reflect on what we could learn from people in the Iron Age, especially their esteem for creation? One of the things that really has struck me with this pandemic is in a society that was really reliant on ritual, I think a lot of what they were accomplishing through ritual was really bringing a bit of order to their unpredictable, unreliable, inexplicable world, right? So they sort of would believe that by following a a certain set of prescribed depths, they could bring a bit of control. And I think now in our very unpredictable world, I wonder if if we relied on ritual a little bit more, whether that might ease some of the the stress Mm. of all this. So Mm. I myself am a practicing yogi. And so yoga is my form of ritual. And it 100% brings ease to me when I practice. Yeah. So I think maybe people should think about what kind of rituals they can adopt or maybe amp up and maybe it's prayer and maybe it's yoga and maybe it's, you know, reading daughter of Black Lake before you go to bed, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or, or reading something before you go to bed. But 
yeah, I think there's there's opportunity to increase our ritual quotient. Yeah, I love that that you're using yoga. I saw that you became a certified yoga instructor recently. Right, I love that yeah. idea of using yoga as a ritual. Well, I mean, I, I do. I follow a prescribed set of steps, and it's a time when I really get out of my head and into my body. And you know, even if I'm doing a different series of postures, I'm the focus is always my breath. Very repetitive aspect to it. Yes. So let's talk about the way your characters are named in this novel. Do we know that they named people this way during those times? Or was that a creative yeah. license? You know, we, we don't know. We don't have the written record. Right. I think that, you know, when you look at our modern day names, I think lots of them are grounded in old, old, old traditions. So we all know people today that are called Carpenter and Tanner and <laughs> right. I should step back here a bit and say in Daughter of Black Lake, all of the you know characters are named things like Carpenter, Tanner, Hunter. Devout is called Devout because she's of her devotion to Mother Earth. Hobble is called Hobble because she limps. You know, and we know women now who, you know, are called Faith or Charity. And I think that so they were named after, you know, certain characteristics or personality traits. So I think certainly historically, there is lots of evidence that names were based on trades or maybe you know, character traits. So that's what I chose to do in the book. And I've had a few people thank me because when you're meeting this whole community, and I find when I drop into a new book, I'm half the time writing stuff on the front page about who is what, but here, you know, like Hunter, oh yeah, he's the Hunter guy. You know? <laughs> yeah, He's the blacksmith. Yeah. So yeah, it makes it much easier to follow. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And I heard you say on another interview that your publisher created a tool, like an Instagram tool where people right. can figure out what their names are. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's an Instagram tool. It's in the highlights on my Instagram page. I'll go look for it. What you do there is you take your number one character trait, so mine's tenacity, and your profession and combine them to make your Black Lake name. So my Black Lake name is Tenacious Writer. Oh, love it. Yes, I will go check that out. That's I love that type of thing. So all of your novels, they take place at times of huge cultural and societal change. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but, but you know, they all do. What opportunities do you see for us now in our society at our current cultural and societal changes from what you've learned in writing? Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, heard the comment a lot, like community at Black Lake does exist on the cusp of great change. So the Romans have invaded. We've got this remote settlement who has lived the same way for thousands of years, and they see that things are about to change. And there are people in the community that are clinging to the old ways that don't want change that fear change, even though this change is coming and quite inevitable. And then we have other people that are more open to the change and embrace change. So in Daughter of Black, like the Druids in particular, do not want change, they fear losing their power, they fear losing, we could say their privilege. So I think we see this reflected in modern day society. I mean, I think the the lesson when you look historically is that we kind of need to embrace change, like change is coming and resisting change, not always helpful, right? Keep an open mind and look for the opportunity rather than the the downside of change. And yeah, I think resisting it just causes you stress, really. It's going to happen anyway, right? Yeah. 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 And I think I heard you say in another interview that you kind of like change. Is that correct? Yeah, no, I do. I'm good with change. (laughs) 
it does a healthier attitude to just adjust to it, I think, and accept right. it. So what's next? I heard you say that your next novel is based in 1962. Yes. You know, this has been such a breeze to, to research compared to recent. <laughs> oh, I bet. It's set 19, in 1962. It takes place over the five days of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So President Kennedy came on TV on October the 22nd and said that there are missiles in Cuba pointed at America, nuclear missiles, and then that it was the situation was resolved, you know, by the Sunday. So that the book takes place over that week. And it's told from four different points of views. And each of the characters is facing a big decision. And the fact that the world might be blown to smithereens at any moment is really mm-hmm. impacting their decision making. Are you still in the research phase? Or are you in the writing yeah, phase? Yeah, I finished researching and I've written about 75 pages. So, oh, yeah. right. Okay. Really well. I'm, I'm excited for this book. That's great. Do you think you'll set any more of your future novels way back in the Iron Age again? Or I mean, never say never, but mm-hmm. you know, I mean, maybe this is part of my liking to embrace change, but like, I, I like the idea of, you know, finding out about something, a new time. Something new. Yeah. yeah. Well, after, you know, researching that era for so long, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity there. Not many people know as much about that era as you do now. Yeah. It would be interesting to have another novel. I could be, I could be a lot more efficient writer if I did. You know. <laughs> I bet. I bet. <laughs> That's true. Do you know about the Enneagram? No. Basically, like a personality thing, there's nine different personality types. And the seven is what I am, which is like, oh, there's something new and shiny here. Oh, <laughs> so, I think I'm yeah. the seven too. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, life would be easier if we did one thing. And I like to make greeting cards, like paper craft, yeah. you know? And mm-hmm. I realized that about myself when I was doing that with a friend of mine who was mass producing the same design all day. Right. And I was doing every single card was different. Right. <laughs> so because we like the change and the variety, right? I just have a few more questions. When the world opens up again, I know you like to travel. Where will you go first? I think about it all the time. I know, me too. <laughs> me too. Where will I go first? You know, I'm dying to get to Portugal. I love Italy. Uh, I've never been to India. I've been close to India. I've been to Sri Lanka and Nepal and Pakistan. But Oh, wow. So I don't know where I'll go first, but it's going to be somewhere and it's going to be an adventure. Yeah, maybe the setting for your next novel. You maybe. <laughs> right? Yeah. Or Belize. You talked about going to Belize when you were a child. Maybe yeah. that's a good place. And then what have you read or watched recently that has inspired you? One of the novels that I read lately that I really loved was a book by an American writer called A Good Neighborhood. It's by Therese Ann Fowler. It's very much timely. I mean, it's very relevant to the whole Black Lives Matter movement. It's it's set in a a neighborhood in the States where racial tension flares up and kind of drives a whole bunch of decision making. That sounds great. I'll add it to my list. That was really wonderful. I'm close to finishing The Henna Artist right now, which is by Alka Joshi. And it's about a henna artist, although she's a whole bunch of other things too, in India, discovers that she's got a a young sister that she has to mentor. And uh, I won't spoil the plot, but there's complications with this young sister. I love Indian fiction. There's so much great treasure there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's. I think maybe, you know, I'm reading this in the pandemic and I'm in India. So like, yay. I mentioned that I was interviewing Sujata Tomasi later on today. And I would recommend to you her historical novel uh, called The Sleeping Dictionary. 
which is excellent. And my final question that I always ask on my podcast is thinking back over your life, is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? Daughter of Black Lake was a really tough book to write and probably the toughest. I mean, the research was tough, but the editorial process was really tough. And there was lots of opportunities for me to give up on this book. So Uh, at one point, the publishers were actually kind of like, maybe you should move on. We're not sure. Oh, my gosh. So it was in the editorial process for two and a half years. So despite it being my third novel, it was by far the toughest book to rewrite, put through the editorial process. So a couple of huge, huge changes, you know, that would take eight months kind of thing. So for example, the pieces of the story that are told by Hobble, which is half the book told by Hobble, the 13 year old girl used to be told by Smith, her father. At oh, one. so wow. some pretty sweeping changes. And when I say tenacious writer, <laughs> my Black Lake name, I mean, I think it does show my grit and my publishers, both of them, you know, have just gone on and on about how they were impressed with my perseverance and, you know, determined nation to get this book right. And I actually think that changed when I changed that part of the story to be told by Hobble versus her father was when the book really came together. So there were some low moments writing this book for sure. So you really had to stick with it. So that's your own personal grit and resilience story. That's great. So you had written it, you had it all written, you set it off and they said, oh no, it needs to be this way. Oh, that, that's, that's a long editorial process. Did you ever seriously think about throwing in the towel then? No, no. You know, even when we, right, when we had the conversation where, you know, it was my agent was talking to me and she's, you know, saying that, you know, the editors, they don't want to cancel your deal, but they think that maybe you should move on. And, you know, maybe you can come back to this book in a few years or whatever. And even as we were having that call, I was like, I can fix this book. Uh I'm going to go back to the book that they bought. Forget the last two years of screwing around with it. They loved this book at one point, and I'm going to get this right. Like in that call, I I knew that was going to happen. Well, your story is a a good lesson for other writers out there just to stick with it. Yeah, it's hard to imagine the book, you know, told from the viewpoint of uh, the father. It would be a completely different book, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be. And it's interesting because one of my dear friends, Anya Sato, another writer, is my first reader. And way back when she read this book, four years ago or whatever, she said, I wish we could hear from Hobble. Like, I would love to be inside the head of a seer. It would be so cool. I wish we could hear from Hobble. And I was like, that's an interesting idea, but that's too much work. (laughs) The moral of the story is listen to Anya Sato. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, this has just been a wonderful conversation, Kathy. I really am grateful for your time. And I hope that everyone rushes out to buy this book, especially all of your books. But Daughter Black Lake was really a tour de force. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marie. I love the fact that Kathy found her call to writing later in life, and now we are benefiting from her overcoming the bad spelling obstacle. I hope you will rush out and buy her books. I promise you won't regret it. And I am grateful for Kathy's tenacity in sticking with the editorial process for Daughter of Black Lake. The book wouldn't have been the same without Hobble's insider perspective. The second writer on resilience is one of my all-time favorite authors, Sujata Massey. I discovered Sujata years ago when she was writing the Rei Shimura detective series about a Japanese-American English teacher antiques dealer who solves mysteries. In recent years, she's moved into historical fiction set in India, and most recently, historical mysteries that are based on a real-life character, India's first woman lawyer. Her books regularly feature on my annual best books list. 
Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Don't forget, you can find photos of Kathy Marie Buchanan, her research, links to purchase her books, and other details on my website, www.fertilegroundcommunications.com. Look for the podcast tab. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Mm-hmm.